Welcome to the Personal Equity Podcast, where we discuss investing in yourself and building personal equity. We take a deep dive with our guests into their stories, careers, and lives from both a personal and financial perspective. I'm your host, Mike Troxel. Today, we'll be speaking with Scott Franson, who is the head rowing coach at the University of California, Berkeley. In our conversation, we covered his Olympic journey, coaching at the D1 level, and the importance of mentors. The links and information in this episode can be found at personalequitypodcast.com. Hi, Scott. Thank you for joining me. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Good to be here. Can you give listeners an idea of sort of where you are now and what you're up to? Uh, living just outside of Berkeley, California in, in Danville and coaching the University of California Berkeley men's rowing team, which is a program that I was part of when I was in university. And it really springboarded me in my rowing career. And so it's a privilege to be back coaching that team again. So I'd love to rewind a bit and walk into sort of how you got to where you are today. And I know there's a lot of stops along the way or a lot of highlights to cover. So I'm trying my best not to dive too deep into a specific one, but so how did you get into rowing? I mean, it's such a sort of a niche sport. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of stops along the way. I went to a different high school for my junior and senior year of high school. My sports at the time were golf and hockey. It was a school that really focused on rugby and rowing. And so I got to Brantwood and was sort of positioned with the choice of choosing one of those. And I did both for a stretch of time, but then really was a skinny kid that didn't really know the rules to rugby. So I gravitated towards rowing and it just kind of clicked fairly early with rowing. I developed the skill for learning how to row a single, rowing a double fairly quickly in my career and, and also recognized the direct correlation between hard work and winning. That was a pretty big piece of it for me. Um, always very competitive. And I think looking back at it now, I always, whether it was hockey or soccer or lacrosse or whatever, I don't think I was ever the most skilled any of my sports growing up. But if it came to just grinding and working harder than everybody else, that's kind of how I approached it all. And with rowing, I kind of found that sport that over time, whoever puts in more work in general wins. And that really spoke to me. But I was in no way a big recruit. Decent results in high school, especially being a bit smaller for most rowers, but went on from Brentwood to Cal or Berkeley. And again, wasn't a big recruit, but worked, you know, just kind of put the work in and against a lot of doubting coaches, put the work in and put the work in and slowly through all the different stages of my career, just kept making progress, I think, because of the work. I know you're pretty modest, but going from, oh, I fell into rowing to rowing at Cal. So were you recruited? Did you sort of force your way in or you a walk on? What did that look like? Yeah, long story there. So through my recruiting process, and again, I was 6'1", 170 pounds with a 6'43 erg score, which for non-rowers out there is pretty average. But I'd been somewhat recruited by Princeton because their coach had gone to Brentwood, had gone to my high school himself. And totally naive to their recruiting process, uh, didn't really have a plan B. And when Princeton fell through at a fairly late date, my high school coach kind of helped clear the path for Cal to be an option. But again, the coach of the Cal at the time really wasn't tripping over himself to get me, but kind of 
allowed me to come based off of, I guess, the reference of my high school coach, Tony Carr. So kind of snuck into the freshman class at Cal. But again, because of my size and most rowers, you know, 6'4", 6'6", somewhere in that range. What are you, Mike? 6'5", 6'6"? 6'4". 6'4", okay. You know, it's 6'1", 170 pounds, definitely very much on the small side. And being on the coaching side myself now, it's easy to slip into, well, 6'4", yeah, good, 6'5", but really 6'1", is he going to be able to compete at a college level? You know, I don't know. So a lot of skepticism, I would say. And a lot of claims that I would never make a boat at Cal or never do anything in rowing. But again, we had the team scheduled workouts through the week and and I would do three or four or five extra workouts a week on my own. And through the course of that freshman year, really from September through December, slowly worked myself up within that freshman group and went from the coach telling me to go home because I was wasting my time to pull in one of the better weight adjusted or the best urge score for a freshman really ever at Cal for under 185 pounds. So again, it's the work. It's being able to do a lot of training and see the results of that in months, you know, not the next day. And I think that's the value of what rowing teaches you. It's to have the persistence to really put your head down and put the work in. And yeah, so to not be all that modest, you know, went on from making the freshman boat to making the varsity three years in a row and winning three national championships and having an amazing experience and career at Cal. Like I was never one of those guys that was 14 years old and had this dream of the Olympics. More just every step along the way, I wanted to progress to the next level. So freshman boat at Cal, varsity national champion, went on to Oxford and got a master's there while competing in the boat race against Cambridge and epic race where we were down the whole race. We came through to win by the smallest of margins ever. After 18 minutes of racing, we won by a foot. And then onto the Canadian team where I competed in three Olympics and won the silver medal in the men's pair in Beijing. So that's my rowing resume. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I appreciate you unpacking all of that. And obviously there's a lot of questions in there. And and oftentimes, when we have a result, it's easy for us to look back and say, oh, this is sort of why that happened, or this is why this makes sense. And even you sharing that story, going from golf and hockey into rowing, in my head, it makes sense, even though in reality, it's a lot harder that, oh, hockey makes you fit and tough. Yeah. And golf brings you a lot of sort of skill and touch. And if there were a couple of traits that might make a good rower, it's a really fit, tough, and skilled individual. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And I think growing up, it's not like we spent all the time camping, but our family vacations were camping in a canoe. So I did learn a little bit of watermanship or boatmanship with a different kind of paddle, but still how to put the paddle in the water and, and a rowing stroke catch to finish is similar. I played all kinds of sports growing up. And I do think that rowing is that perfect combination of everything for me, where I didn't have the mentality for golf was If anything went wrong, if I had a bad shot, I just got super frustrated and tense and pissed off. And in golf, that's a terrible thing to happen or to allow to happen. Whereas in rowing, you can take all of your anger. You can take every ounce of anger or disappointment or frustration out on the oar. And I think that avenue or that release really helped me, again, being a reasonably competitive person. Do you have any early memories of working hard or being extremely persistent? I mean, you've mentioned a couple of times that you were sort of overlooked as a recruit or there was doubts from coaches or they made certain predictions about you. And obviously hard work and grinding and persistence 
Where does that come from? Or do you know? Yeah, I don't know. I think it was instilled in me by my brother and my dad, for sure. I have early memories, you know, the typical Canadian story of early morning practices when you're growing up. And so having practice at 530 in the morning before school and having everybody else reluctant and sleepy in the change room and me, I'd get dressed into my hockey gear, half of it at least at home, so that when I got to the rink, I could be first on the ice and just have that I'm doing more work or I'm doing more than everybody else experience. And for me, like that was pretty formative. But no, it's not like I had the training mentality of working harder than everybody else when I was 12, 13 years old. But I think I did see it fairly quickly as I transitioned into rowing. And yeah, I remember my first couple months of rowing, whereas I think a lot of people do a learn to row or slowly get into their novice team and they do the four workouts a week. I remember going into the erg room later at night and doing some extra workouts with friends of mine because we knew that over time that was going to help us win or get to that next level. And then, as I said earlier, translate that to my first year at Cal and I wasn't where I wanted to be, all this doubt, all this skepticism and, and telling me I should go home. So my response to that was, all right, well, I'm going to show everybody. And I knew how to do that by putting more work in. And I think especially at that younger age, your identity latches on to something that you think you're good at or what you're getting praised for. That's just natural. And so as I clawed my way up in that group, September, October, November, really through January of that freshman year, and all of a sudden, I had that positive reinforcement of what you've been doing for the past four months worked. And now here you are. Okay, it was only at that freshman level. But still, trying to continue that on for the next really 15 years, that path or that correlation had already been very much established in my mind. You just reminded me of a quote I saw recently, mental toughness is persistence, not intensity. But in your case, you were persistent and intense. Yeah. Then you get Scott Franson. <laughs> it's funny. I have these conversations with my guys, my student athletes and recruits all the time. You know, I think not to generalize and say we're in this new era, this new generation of participation medals and that sort of thing, because I think that discredits a lot of really good young athletes right now. But we are in this era of people think that they work hard or people think that they're doing more or people think that they're intense or competitive or your mom tells you you're the most hardworking kid in the world. And a number of times I've heard that it's kind of funny now, but there's a spectrum of all of those things from participation level to healthy level to unhealthy level. And I say unhealthy with all this stuff tongue in cheek because that's who I am. And it depends on where you are on all of these spectrums to whether you make progress as I did or whether you're just kind of a middle of the road kind of athlete or kind of person. And not everybody is wired like I am. And I don't know if you have to be to be a successful you know, elite athlete. I, I don't know, but that's my approach. When we say competitive, yeah, I'm far into the spectrum. When we say intense, I'm far into the spectrum. And I think that combination of it, and again, the direct correlation to hard work and rowing and success, it was perfectly aligned for me. And that's not to gloss over how bumpy and how frustrated and how difficult the road to my success was. A couple more questions about your time at Cal. During those first few months when you were those things were being said to you by coaches or teammates or whoever was doubting you. Were there times where you thought like, maybe I should go back home or maybe this isn't for me? Or was that never creep into your mind? 
Yeah, I think I'd be delusional to think that I didn't have any ounce of self-doubt. Of course I did. And there were maybe the barriers to actually leaving were just great enough that I didn't pack up and leave. But yeah, there were some hard times. And back then, you know, I think talking about barriers to leaving, and I don't know if that would have been the case in today's day and age of cell phones and texting parents and that sort of thing, because I think that that makes it easier now to back out of a challenging situation because mom and dad are reachable at any point to reinforce whatever it is you're thinking without any information about what's actually going on. So if I was able to text my brother or to text my mom and dad or to text friends and say, this sucks, this is why it's so hard and this is why it sucks right now and get that immediate feedback or immediate reinforcement, maybe things would be different. Back then, I talked to my parents once a week or I talked to any sort of outside support network much, much less frequently than is available now. So you had to sort of sit in the discomfort or sit in the frustration and figure it out. And again, I think a lot of guys still know how to do that and do that. But it's interesting to think through the difficulties that I had, but the, I guess, lack of immediate outlet. So this question isn't necessarily specific to you. It's sort of everyone in the Cal family. I didn't go to Cal, but I lived near the university for quite some time. And something about the school makes people like bleed blue and gold. And I know you're no different, you know, from your time there. And now you've been coaching there for seven, eight, nine years. So what is it about the school or the community that makes people bleed it? It seems so unique. I agree. I don't know. Is it the same at a bunch of other universities or institutions around the country? Maybe, probably. But I definitely had that experience and now I'm still in that experience. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's something about the difficulty of the experience and it was hard. It was challenging. I also think it's open competition. And I'll try to explain what that means. A lot of other great rowing schools, private schools, Ivy League, I think the ability to fail in those schools is almost removed completely. Whereas at Cal, there's a ton of resources, academic resources that are there to help you along the way, but it's on you to go and seek them out. I think it prepares you for the real world better to have that ownership of, I have to figure this out rather than things are being handed to me. And I think that's a very distinct differentiation. But then what gets it into your blood? I can't speak to the general university experience, but I agree with it. It's there. I think what does it specifically with the athletic department and men's rowing team specifically, you're going through some very hard training, some difficult times, some amazing times. And when you do that with this awesome group of guys from all over the U.S. and all over the world, it bonds you together to that group, to those guys, and also to the experience. And for me, being lucky to be a part of such a great group that had some great success and won four national championships in a row, those memories and those experiences, they shape your character and winning, I think specifically, makes everything be remembered positively. You know, when you win, all the frustrations or all the little things that went wrong along the way, they're kind of forgotten. And it's just kind of glossed over a little bit. I think for the rowing alumni that were here during successful stints, that combination of difficult, challenging academics, a challenging training program, amazing group of guys from around the world, and cap it all off with winning once or four times, it's going to hardwire itself into who you are and what you value. And it's a pretty cool, special experience. It's hard to try to relay that to recruits or incoming guys, just how formative this four years is going to be. And if you really 
engage in it and embrace it and give yourself completely to it. It's not hyperbole. It really will stick with you for the rest of your life. You said something interesting that I hadn't really considered before. And I think it's pretty well known that going through difficult experiences with groups does bring you closer together, whether it's athletics or even military or Navy SEALs, or there's a lot of other examples. Now, people that go to Cal, it seems like there's this bleed blue and gold mentality or belief. But I've also heard that Cal, and you mentioned this, is it's one of the most competitive universities in the world. You can argue about whether it's the best or this or that, right? You can argue that all day long. But something I've heard from a number of students and alumni is it's so competitive, whether that's the grading system or like you mentioned, how failure is almost removed from a lot of universities. And I would agree with that. But maybe that is the answer. Like it's so competitive that people feel so connected to the university, maybe after they leave, maybe not during it, but maybe after they leave. One thing I wanted to touch on was, and you mentioned this is Oxford. So we sort of fast forwarding through your college career. Yes, it does put you to sleep a little bit. How many times you guys won, you know, gold, gold, gold. But that Oxford Cambridge boat race, I guess to quiz you for a minute, I know there's been something like 150 or 200 consecutive years of races between those two schools there. I mean, they're arch rivals. Do you recall what boat race you were in? (laughs) I want to say 147 or 148, somewhere in there. I think there was a big 150 celebration a couple of years after me, but I think, yeah, I think so. We'll take your word for it, but I guess maybe it would help if you gave listeners a little bit of an insight to that race. I mean, essentially rowing is, you guys are like the opposite of celebrities in the world, but something about that race and that location and that city and that country, it's a massive deal. So what is it about and what's it like? Yeah, in so many ways, it was very, very similar to my student athlete experience at Cal. Great group of guys. And just to kind of go back to that from my explanation of what bonds the guys or me to what this experience is. And and I really think it is the concentration of a huge group, you know, 40, 50, 55 guys that are all very similar in that they're athletic, they're intelligent, they're driven, obviously on various spectrums or places in those spectrums. But as I got outside of rowing, a little tangent here, but as I got outside of rowing, I really searched for that connection to a group that was pursuing excellence and that had a common purpose. I couldn't find it anywhere else, which is why my getting back into coaching and being a part of that and kind of trying to lead that sort of group has, I think, gone well, because I think I understand what that group is or what it needs to be. But anyway, sorry, back to Oxford. It was kind of an extension of what my Cal experience was. Obviously, very different people, but it was that opportunity to pursue graduate work, graduate studies, and row in a completely strange and unique experience where at Cal or in the US, everyone's training towards, okay, they have important duels, Cal, Washington, Harvard, Yale, but really everyone's training towards the national championship at the end of May where they're going to race everybody. So it's not as personal as the Oxford-Cambridge boat race, where, yeah, you're training eight, nine months to race one other crew, and that's the focus for the whole year. And it's in possibly the most unfair setting you could come up with on the Thames in all kinds of weather conditions, 
and going with the tide. So the coxswains are all each fighting for the middle of the stream. And there's all different kinds of ideas of where that middle of the stream is. And there's bends and currents and going under bridges. And it's as chaotic as of a rowing race as you can possibly get. And it's three and a half times as long. Whereas all of college rowing, all the important races and any international or Olympic race is 2,000 meters. And that takes roughly, call it six minutes, five and a half, six minutes in an eight. The boat race is four and a quarter miles or about seven kilometers. And so, yeah, it takes 18 minutes instead of six. That's a whole different beast. But it was just such a great experience. And again, the quality of guy, the like-mindedness of the guys that I went through the experience with will stick with me for my entire life. It is interesting because rowing is almost the opposite of a spectator sport. But I was reading earlier that I think the first year it was televised in England, there was something like four or five million views. I know there's thousands of people that line the shores and maybe line the bridges. That's um, what a unique experience. Yeah, you go from rowing, which is a peripheral sport in American university athletic departments where the focus is football and basketball and a couple other sports. And you go to Oxford and Cambridge, and I wouldn't say you're celebrities. I wouldn't jump that far. But people know who's in the Oxford University Boat Club or the OUBC. That's for sure. And there's a little bit more recognition. And yeah, come boat race day, there's upwards of 300,000 people on the shores and something like 10 or 11 million people watching on TV, helicopters overhead, and you're doing everything you can to block out the distractions and just focus on beating one crew. So it's pretty intense. So looking back throughout your entire career, coaching and competing, what is the most memorable race you've ever had? I mean, again, again, you mentioned 18, 20 minutes long, and you guys set the record for smallest margin of victory in 160 170 something races. I mean, is that the most memorable victory? It's pretty memorable. I have little snippets of a lot of races in my mind that pop up trying to compete for that (laughs) most memorable memory. But no, I can remember sitting at the start line. I can remember being down for most of the race, being behind. I'd say I have a terrible memory in general, but I have a pretty good memory for the intense moments of my life in the middle of races where you have that little bit of calm or that little bit of awareness of where you're at. And a lot of really good memories from races at Cal or Oxford or the Olympics. Yeah, just doing a little bit of homework before this conversation. I looked at the clip of that race and also your 2008 silver medal race. And definitely that Oxford race made me almost jump out of my seat. I was excited for you now watching the 2008 video, but the Oxford one was Quite incredible. So I'll have to link to that. And so at this moment in time, did you see a national team career sort of in front of you? This is what, 2003? 2003. And yeah, I did. I saw the next level, the next step in front of me. And so while at Cal, after my junior year, so summer of 2001, I went and tried out for the Canadian under-23 national team and made that eight and actually stroked the eight to win the world championships, under 23 world championships. So that was kind of my first step into the international rowing scene, I guess. The following year after my senior year at Cal, right before I went to Oxford, uh, again, went and made the under 23 eight and we got second that year. 
so I was kind of in the pipeline a little bit for a national team, you know, still very, you know, big, big jump from U23s to senior team. But then my year at Oxford was that next step, I think. And then right after the boat race, I actually flew back to Canada pretty quickly, about two or three weeks after, and completed the rest of my master's while in Canada and training to try to make the Canadian team. Made the pair that summer, the year before the Athens Olympics, and did reasonably well. Finished sixth, really the accomplishment there for a young, young pair was making the final, which was a good first step. And then moved to the national team training center full time. So I was there essentially from June for 13 months, 14 months until the Athens Olympics and, and was able to make my way into the Canadian eight, which had won the world championships the last two years. We won all the preseason races going into Athens and then kind of it not fell apart. That's harsh, but the momentum and the pressure of going into the Olympics as the favorite to win. If anything negative happens, it's really hard to recover from, you know, having the perspective of what now 16 years looking back on it. Yeah, we had the weight of our own expectations, the weight of the country's expectations. And the first race in the heat, we broke the world record, but we lost to the Americans by 0.3, I think 0.3 of a second. And rather than viewing that as, okay, we're, we're fast. We just broke the world record. We viewed it as a total disaster because we hadn't beaten the Americans and maybe we weren't going to win. And then that spiral of self-doubt and crippling self-doubt really started. And we ended up finishing fifth, which never was in the realm of possibility going into the regatta. That's interesting. So the experience after the heat, after breaking the world record, there was a lot of sort of how you viewed it or perspective. And so fast forwarding, like you mentioned, 16 years, now that is one of your primary jobs, right? Like you're leading a team, a staff. I don't know how big your squad is, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 young men. And that sort of mental fortitude or perspective or the highs and lows is one of the things I'm sure that keeps you up at night or that you think about. Is that accurate? Absolutely. And it's not like you don't have that overwhelming anxiety or fear that what you're working towards isn't going to happen. You're going to lose. You're going to, you know, that's all still there, especially through the ups and downs of training going well, or if you have the guys do an erg test and it goes well, great. If it doesn't go well, how do you react to that? And it really is hiding the stomach acid that's brewing and allowing all that self-doubt to creep in on inside, but on the exterior, trying to project a steady, balanced Okay, you know, we react to it. We have resilience that we've talked about all the time and, and have that consistent path. Here we go. Like, we're just going to get back to work. Positive result or negative result. It's just a steady course. And that's hard because you're just as invested in the results. And we pride ourselves on we're, we're here to win. We're not here to compete. We're not here to make the final. We're here to try to win. And the level, the top level of competition in college rowing is hard. It's a high level. So you're not going to win all the time, no matter what your objectives are or what you're training every day. is. It's competitive and it's really hard. So it's being able to weather the losses and come back and convince everybody or show everybody that you're still on track to achieving the stated goals. So I believe, if I did my homework correctly, you have a master's in psychology. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. And so... I would think, given that that's such a large part of your job, I mean, that's a decent tool to have in your back pocket. 
Yeah, I think it is. It's interesting. I got a business degree from Cal. And then when I went on to Oxford, I kind of had the choice between a master's in mathematical finance or this brand new master's in psychology. And I'd taken a bunch of just elective courses in psych at Cal and just really enjoyed it. And so convincing my dad that psychology master's was going to be worthwhile, I think the line was something like 80% of management is psychology and being able to read your employees. So he sort of finally got behind the idea that that was going to be valuable. And now flash forward, what, 15, 20 years to my career, and it's a huge part. It's not maybe not directly what I studied at Oxford, for sure, but being able to connect with guys and relate to them and trying to figure out why their response is what it was and try to bring it back around and, and how that impacts the group and all like that is 90% of my job. So it is all applicable. <laughs> I imagine that that's been quite the adjustment as an athlete. I mean, you sort of highlighted the work you put in and not just at practice, but the extra work you put in. It's sort of more, more, more work harder, get better. But with coaching, it's it almost flips it on its head. It's, you know, it's not necessarily more, it's more art, right? More psychology, like you said, 80, 90% of your job. So are there ways that you're trying to improve in that arena as far as any resources or books or mentors that's trying to sort of level up your game there? Yeah, I should probably do more. But no, reading a bunch of, I guess, leadership books or more coaching books. And then the Quintessential Rowing book by Steve Fairbairn. And if you've been around many rowing programs, most older coaches love to quote Steve Fairbairn. But reading a few books and okay, you pull little nuggets from that. But I also think it's just chatting with or being or going in the launch with some of the coaches that I really respect and trying to pull from their knowledge and their experience. For me, that's the coach who was my coach at Cal, a varsity coach was Steve Gladstone, and he's now the coach at Yale. So I talk to Steve once a month, at least usually probably more frequently than that. And then one of the benefits of while I was the assistant coach at Cal, the head coach was Mike Tatey. So He's been in the U.S. rowing team as an athlete or a coach since 1977 or something like that. So lots of experience there to pull from. And now the U.S. national team trains out of the Cal Boathouse. So they're right next door. So I chat with Mike a lot. And to be able to pull from, from Mike Tatey and Steve Gladstone, as well as all my other coaches along the way, I use that, I think, more than books. And I imagine you have a lot of individual experience in this because, again, every year the team consists of again, a large number of guys and everyone's different. And so you probably learn so much from the different types of athletes and the different ages, the different stages, and also the different sort of micro stages of ups and downs during a season or a semester. So is there anything that you can sort of pinpoint where you've learned a lot or grown a lot from you know looking at it today in 2020 versus your first year coaching? Yeah, I do think that's been a pretty big change from when I first started coaching in 2012. I think I started with the idea of, no, this is the mentality that is needed. This is the training program that we're going to do. Get on board or get out of here. We're not going to tailor all of this or I'm not going to tailor all of my communication to meet the needs of every individual guy. Like, come on, get on board and let's go. And I think there's still some value in that approach. But I definitely think, you know, especially as I've stepped up into being the head coach, you know, taking the time to talk to a lot of the guys, not just the top guys, but a lot of the guys and having them 
feel like they can always come to my office and have a conversation and not that they're going to get screamed at or that sort of thing. I think that's really opened them up to see what my process is or see what I want to have happen over the next week or month or year and allow them to have input into that, but also see how much thought has gone into it or see how invested in everything I am. And I think that increases their buy-in as well. If they don't feel like they're part of the process or they don't feel like their voices are being heard, even if it's not necessarily going to change the course of the ship, then I think they're not as invested. So uh, yeah, putting much more time into that sort of thing. I joke that you know, coaching the rowing stroke or designing the training program or that aspect of my job is like 10%. <laughs> and then recruiting and compliance and paperwork is a huge chunk of it. And then, yeah, spending time connecting with the guys and checking in on them about this or checking them about academics and making them see that this whole experience is something that I'm extremely passionate about and that it's not just a job. And for me, and I say this a couple of times at the beginning of every year, if I see that you're as invested in this experience as I am, then we're going to be good. If you're not, then I have a very short patience or a very short attention span for that. And so I, they, they know very quickly that what I value is that engagement. And from that, as we've talked about at the beginning of all this, if you're, if you're engaged in it and doing the hard work, chances are you're going to put yourself in a good position to win. I imagine this is something you may not think about much, but I think coaches are in a very interesting position as far as a legacy goes. What I mean by that is when any coach gets old or sick or passes away, a family member of mine is a volleyball coach for quite some time, recently passed away. And when that happens, it's sort of incredible how many people from the past, A, they've impacted and affected, mostly positive, that sort of come out of the woodwork and talk about those individuals as if they were a second father or a second mother to them. And again, that's a big statement or topic, but I would imagine that's something you don't think about much. Yeah, it's definitely there. I see that as a huge honor to be able to play that role or to strive to play that role. But, you know, there's the pressure of it too, which is fine. I don't say that to back away from it. That's, as you said, the coach's role in some, through some of these experiences, especially in those formative years of 18 to 22, when, you know, young men are figuring out who they are and what they really care about and who they want to be and how to get there. And to be a guide through that and to be like a pusher through that, there's a lot there. And again, sorry, it's an honor to kind of be a part of that process for so many guys. I mean, we have 52 guys on the team, 50 to 55, somewhere in there most years. And you're not going to have that impact on every one of them. That's for sure. But to strive to set the example of having that clarity. I mean, for me, and this is something I've kind of, this is a term that I've really come to like in this past year to have that example of the clarity of purpose. Like, who do you want to be and what do you need to do to get there? And people that aren't fuzzy about that, people that aren't bending and weaving and trying to combine a bunch of different versions of that self that they want to be, people who have that clarity of purpose, people rally around those people. And to try to set the example of, of that for my team every single year, you know, you're going to have some pretty strong connections with a lot of young men whether they carry that with them for the next month or the next 20 years, who knows? But you know, at the end of the day, we're here to win rowing races, but things like that are more important. 
But then I also think that when you win, relationships like that embed themselves more long-term, right? If I'm the nice guy who guides all these young men and rowers to really pleasant 10th place finishes, is that really going to stick with them as much as if I'm the consistent hard driver that is compassionate as well as driving the group very hard and holding a hard line and we're in the mix to win and sometimes we win, that experience is going to stick with them for the rest of their lives, I hope. And again, not everybody. You're not going to be able to connect with everybody, but that is an element of this job where that is this job. And I didn't realize that when I got into it. You saying a clarity of purpose reminded me of a quote. If the vision is clear, the decision is easy. That's great. I love it because that's what I preach. Like if you know exactly what you want to do, the thousand little decisions that you make every day are easy. If you don't know what you want to do or who you want to be, then all those thousand little decisions about whether you go to bed, whether you, whether you are hydrated, whether you drink water, like whether you eat, you know, all these little things, those are difficult decisions and they shouldn't be if you know what you want to do. Exactly. So bouncing back just a little bit, so you mentioned you, have, you stay in great contact with your former coach and colleagues, so Gladstone and Tatey. Are most of those conversations sort of friendly or catching up or are there a lot of X's and O's discussing various situations? Both. I'd say primarily, I mean, maybe different with both of them. I think I call Steve to catch up and we get into other things, more of the X's and O's. Sometimes more, I guess I call Mike about a certain question more specifically, and then we get into the generalities. So yeah, I'd say different with both of them. So I'd love to chat a little bit about ways you're investing in yourself. But one particular item or hobby or investment I'd love to touch on is I believe early in your Cal coaching career, you got pretty into physically investing in yourself with uh, triathlons and Ironmans. Is that right? Yeah, I'm not sure I'd word it that way, but I was very much into, I needed a competitive outlet. Now that wasn't rowing. I had rowed for give or take 17 years and finished the Olympics. And two weeks later, I was coaching at Cal. And so much of my identity was wrapped into being an elite athlete. And to think that I would just stop and coach and do nothing else, I would have gone crazy. And so I jumped fully into the training for Ironman races. And it was exactly what I needed. Taking that training mentality of I can do more, I can do more, I can train harder. And fitting that in between coaching sessions, you know, I'd coach in the morning, I'd go for a four hour ride coach in the afternoon and fit in an hour swim or an hour run at night or, you know, some variation of that through the week. And I was training just as much as I was training for the Olympics, about 22 hours a week. And I got injured a lot (laughs) because you take the same training mentality from rowing into impact of running. My body took a while to adjust, but I just needed that competitive outlet and found it in Ironman. And I was good. And on that edge of being able to be a pro or just a really good age group athlete, for a while, thought about trying to pursue that and go pro and race it seriously. But as I got into coaching more and more, that desire kind of faded. And I was happy to race and be fast, but focus on coaching. And then I'd say kind of four years into doing Ironman, I think I just kind of slowly redefined who I was or what I wanted to do. And that desire to train every single day and don't get in my way. This is what I'm doing kind of changed. And over the course of about nine months, I'd say I went from, again, knowing exactly what I wanted to do with Ironman and 
having a plan and training and pushing forward with that to just not really needing to do it anymore. And so I, I kind of stopped and went into exercising a little bit and then that faded and I really did almost no training at all for two or three years. And then really started back into it a little bit this year. And then the quarantine with coronavirus has given me a little bit more time to get back into some level of, we'll call it training, but it's low level training. Yeah, I loved reading about one of your races in Kona. I mean, I forget which year, but I believe that's the Ironman World Championships. Uh, yeah, yeah. So to qualify through a different Ironman around the world and Kona is the World Championships. I raced in Kona three times. I want to say 2013, 14, and 15. And so that was very well written, and I really enjoyed it. Three of the highlights maybe we can just touch on is the violence of the swim or the violence of the start of the swim. Do you recall that experience or writing about it? I can vividly remember being in that swim, that first 10 minutes of the swim in Kona. Swimming was never my strength. I got to be okay at it, but swimming in a pool is a completely different sport. <laughs> or even the swim start, you know, there's these mass starts of roughly 3,000 people all hitting the water at once. In a regular Ironman that's not Kona, that spreads out reasonably quickly. So it's violent or it's chaotic for five minutes, maybe 10 minutes. But then you get into your pack and okay, there's still some jostling around because everyone's trying to get into a slipstream or draft off the guy in front of you. But in Kona, that stretching out of the pack really didn't happen because everybody's pretty good. <laughs> and so I thought I was ready for that, but I wasn't. I got out of the water feeling like I had been in a street fight for an hour and three minutes. Scratches all over my body. People had been grabbing at my goggles to try to get ahead of me, grabbing my feet, elbowing. It was crazy. And so, yeah, obviously learning experience and more ready for it. And I guess better strategy for it the next couple of years. But yeah, that was something. So that was your first Ironman. So the race is about jumping to the end, nine and a half hours. And so it sounds like, as you just outlined, the first hour and three minutes was pretty intense. But reading further down your piece, it was eventful even beyond that, maybe the first three or four hours. What happened after the swim? Oh, man. So yeah. <laughs> Learning experience. Well, maybe fast forward to <laughs> an hour or two into the bike ride. How about that? So a good fast, a good solid time is about 10 hours, of which an hour is a swim, five hours is the bike and, and call four-hour marathon, somewhere in there. But yeah, so swim, total street fight. I mean, get out of it almost wobbly because I thought I'd just been in a fight for an hour. And running through transition to get my bike and get my helmet on, kind of bump into another another guy, another athlete doing the same thing. And don't think anything of it, untangle ourselves, untangle our bikes and get going. And really, the bike was my strength. Like That's where the rowing muscles, the rowing mentality really transferred well. And so I get onto the bike. And again, over a 10-hour race, you're really wanting to not blow yourself up in the first couple hours. So get onto a heart rate or get onto this perceived effort and stay there. No matter if you're passing everybody or getting passed, like you need to manage your output. And my output feels like it's in the range of what it's supposed to be, but I'm going slow and I don't understand why. And I get 40 miles or about 60 kilometers in and the saint of a man kind of is passing me and says, hey, your rear brake's rubbing. And I was like, no way, no way. And he's like, yeah, I can hear it. So in my mindset of ignore all the details, ignore all the inputs and just go. That's my training mentality to a fault, obviously. 
and I kind of reach behind me and feel where my brake pad is and it's against my wheel. And so as I'd been coming at a transition and bumped into that other athlete, obviously something had hit my brake and knocked it over onto the wheel. I rode the first 60K of 180 kilometer bike ride with the brakes on. So I realigned the brakes and it's like I dropped 100 pounds off my bike and all of a sudden I'm passing all these people that passed me. But yeah, learning experience. <laughs> it is interesting. And looking through your website, that part right there tells me more about your mental discipline than all of the golds and the silvers and the records and this and that, where you were committed enough, like you believed in your race plan enough to stay on that target heart rate, even though you were being passed by all of these people that you didn't think should be passing you. And you're such a racer. And I think in another part of your website, you had described yourself or you'd mentioned that you've been described as sort of intense and stubborn and fiery and competitive. But for 60 kilometers with the break on, you were committed to, I'm staying on this heart rate. I'm staying on my plan. Yeah. That's got to be tough. I mean, I think that says a lot about you. Yeah, you're right. There was a lot of what, what, what is going on? And then as soon as there was a solution or a reason and that was fixed, anyway, the rest of the day was a lot better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I enjoyed reading about that. And the last small uh, sort of comment I enjoyed, you mentioned that food and hydration is the unofficial fourth event of a triathlon. And I can imagine that's the case after nine or 10 hours. Yeah, it absolutely is. And honestly, looking back at all of my races, I don't know if I ever really nailed it with hydration and food. Played around with it a lot. You know, I don't want to just discount it to hot races were difficult for me being a bit bigger for a triathlete. And I think I have a very high sweat rate. So I sweat a lot. So in a hot race in Kona, when it's 90 degrees, 95 degrees out, that's a difficult set of uh, circumstances for an a triathlete like me. But it really was so important to stick on a schedule of every hour on the bike. I needed to drink a liter and a half. I needed to have a hundred cal or sorry, four to five hundred calories. I needed to have a hundred grams of carbs. Like it was all very scripted. And the races that I was able to stick to that were generally the ones that I did well. And actually the best race that I had where I won the overall age group athletes and placed like seventh or eighth amongst the pros, it was a cool day where I feel like I almost overhydrated and overate. And by the time I got to the run, I was actually running rather than just full survival mode. So yeah, interesting little details. I mean, that translates to everything that translates to rowing. Did you take care of the details through the year, through the day of the big race? And that's what I preach to my guys a lot is taking care of the details. So again, going back to investing in yourself, I really enjoy the website. So what was that experience like? Sort of how did you decide on creating this website? There hasn't been a post in a little while, obviously extremely busy with the 55 young men you're coaching and the beautiful family you have. Do you still write or what was writing like for you? I don't. And I do think it was a really good outlet for me. So for those that don't know, I used to write a blog every week or two through really through my last two years leading up to the London Olympics. 
And then I kept it going a little bit through the transition into Ironman and a little bit of coaching there. You know, honestly, the reason to start the website was as an amateur athlete in Canada, you make very, very little money. And so to try to attract some sponsorship, you need to have some sort of online presence and things that people can look to to say, oh, he's whatever sponsored by whatever product, which really didn't work. But I think the outlet and the challenge of being able to express my view or myself or my thoughts on different topics. First, when I was training for rowing, it gave me something different to focus on, which when you're in just full-time training life and have nothing else, no school, no job, nothing, training is all-encompassing. And the ups and downs can then be harder to manage because your whole life is how practice went that morning. Whereas if even if you have a little distraction of writing a blog and wanting to edit this paragraph and say something differently and you know, always taking little shots at the system or, you know, that I will fully admit to being controversial a little bit in what I was writing about to prove points. But again, I think I really enjoyed being able to express things that I'd learned or things that I thought needed to change. As I've gotten into coaching, I have that outlet every day in terms of talking to the guys after practice or reinforcing certain points on the water or having those one-on-one conversations. So that's kind of my outlet for all of that. And the online presence, you know, I've almost kind of retreated from any desire to have social media or that sort of thing. So the need for the website, whereas I like it, and my wife actually put it together, she's good with that stuff. I like looking back at the photos and what I did write. The need for that sort of platform, I think, is gone. I don't know. Through the recruiting process with guys all over the world, you know, every once in a while, I'll get a parent saying, hey, I read your blog on this and this. And it's like, wow, someone is still reading these things. So maybe that indicates the need for that platform isn't gone. But maybe I just don't have the time to dedicate to it. Well, I'm as guilty as you giving up a blog, at least temporarily. I can't tell you how many unfinished articles I have. So if you ever need an <laughs> accountability partner, because I know I need one, we, we can <laughs> lean on each other. So I know we need to wind down here a little bit. And there, obviously, there's so many questions I have. So maybe it makes sense to sort of jump into these final questions here. So you touched on your books a little bit. Are there any, it doesn't have to be sort of work or leadership or coaching related. Is there any current interesting content you're consuming to sort of learn or just disconnect? Is for, you know Movies, shows, podcasts, anything like that? I always have good intentions to get into more podcasts because I think there's some good content there. And then I just never have the time to just put earphones in and do nothing else. I'm also listening to a book through Audible. I used to have my commutes into the boathouse or back from Berkeley, which was give or take an hour and a half a day, where I would go through a lot of that content, either audiobooks or some podcasts. And obviously, in the last three months, I haven't had that time. So my go-to, my recentering book has always been Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. I love it. I'm on my fourth or fifth reading now listening to it. But the downside of it is it's like I think it's 56 hours or 57 hours of content. So I'm about 28 hours in. So that's been taking up a lot of my time. I went for an hour run this morning and listened to it for a while, which was enjoyable. Content on TV, we're at the end of Succession, which is a great show. We are diehard Survivor fans, so have continued to watch all 40 seasons of that. If a Survivor executive producer is ever listening to this podcast, I would love to, <laughs> to be on the show. 
<laughs> Honestly, this is an area that I do think I need to carve out more time and do more of. As I sit at my desk in my garage, I have six books in front of me, of which I've read 10%, two of them. But they're here, and I'm supposed to be reading them, and I just don't. So I do think that's something that, you know, especially because now working at home and as soon as I'm done all my work, I feel obligated to and I, and I want to go and engage with family. And I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And can I really sit in the garage and read a book instead of going and having lunch with my son? Probably not a good call. Whereas if I'm at the office and I'm done emails and conversations and I have an hour, then I would probably pick up that book. So the lack of, I guess, separation of life right now is giving me that excuse to not do that, which I should change. I'm pretty impressed there. You've shown quite a track record of being committed to things for the long term, being disciplined. So 56 hours of Atlas Shrugged on four <laughs> separate occasions and 40 seasons of Survivor. Yeah, I'd say that those are some pretty impressive stats. And I like what I like. <laughs> yes, you, you, you know what you like. I'm assuming you don't, there's not much variety in your lunches that you pack to work. No. Same breakfast. Uh, it's funny. If you ask my son what I have for breakfast, he will immediately say eggs and toast. I three eggs, two pieces of toast every single morning. <laughs> Beautiful. We would be decent roommates then. I'm <laughs> glad you mentioned that book. I've seen your wonderful bookshelf you have in the house. I was curious if you were going to give a shout out there. <laughs> Always. So you have an interesting perspective for this next question. You're coaching young men that range from 17, 18 to maybe 23, 24. And you have a couple young children, as you mentioned. So if you had to design a course, you know, any subject, any age, what would it be and why? Yeah, I mean, interesting. I th for me, I think it comes back to developing that clarity of purpose. And it's going to be different for every single person. But a course that helps explore how to define what that is for you and how to set parameters around reinforcing that, again, as it's defined for you. I think people really shy away or they're pulled in different directions and they don't know how to establish those firm boundaries, or those, those firm uh, definitions of who they want to be and what is needed to get there. And I think it's easy, you know, it's average and it's easy to have all those areas or those lines blurred because being that sharp or being that clear with what you want to do is hard and it's harder than allowing yourself to be blurred. And I also think that some people, lots of people don't have that clear thing that they want to do or might want to do. They are who they are is, is more well-rounded <laughs> or well-rounded is the positive way of looking at it. And for me, blurred is the negative way of looking at it. And so of course that helps to define that and again, create parameters around how to achieve that. That's the course that I would be a part of. So for your one hour run tomorrow, you're forced to listen to me interview somebody. Who's that person? Some of the, I guess, the content that I didn't reference in the last couple of questions. You know, I've obviously watched the Last Dance documentary with Jordan and I've been watching the 30 for 30 with Lance. You know, so many different aspects to their personalities that I connect to and positive or negative spin on both of them. But the easy answer for me is always Muhammad Ali. Man, what a character in his prime. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I think I don't have a good, clear answer for that one. But someone who has clarity of purpose. And I'll retreat back to that. And that's why it's funny. I, I love the shows. I don't watch them anymore. But, you know, the old 
American idols or the like America's Got Talent or stuff like that, where people have this skill that maybe they don't even know how skilled they are. And there's those canned moments in these shows where they have that realization of, you know, I'm really good at this and this is what I want to do. Like, I don't care if it's in sport or in music or in whatever avenue it is that you're passionate about. If you have that clarity of purpose, again, I don't want to overstate that one little phrase, but anyone with that sort of sense of purpose, I'll listen to and talk about what drives them to have that. Boy, have I got a America's Got Talent link for you that I'll send you <laughs> after. A couple of weeks ago, I saw a three-year-old video of, uh, I think she was 12 at the time, Grace Vanderwall, watching her performance. It definitely brought a, you know, there was a little dust that got in my eye. So with a couple of young kids at home like yourself, it's touching. So flip, yeah. flipping the question around, if you had an hour of your time sort of a dream guest to have for your own interview or conversation, does anybody come to mind? You know, I think it'd be interesting to interview a lot of my coaches from along the way and see, I guess, what their interpretation or what their perception of me was through. And I'll pull little pieces of of what that was and to try to work that into, I guess, coaching my guys now. But yeah, I'd, I'd love to go down memory lane and interview, you know, Tony Carr and Craig Amerconian and Steve Gladstone and that sort of thing. Beautiful. Well, I know you got to run, Scott. It was great having you. Thank you so much. We covered a ton and there's a lot more for us to cover next time. <laughs> next time we see each other after this quarantine, yeah. if it ever ends. It but, will uh, end. And yes, it'll be good to see you whenever that's done. <laughs> well, all the best and take care. Thanks, Mike. Thanks again for listening to today's show. We hope you enjoyed it. All of the show notes and links can be found at personalequitypodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to share it with a friend or leave a review. Reviews help the show get noticed. The best places to leave a rating or a review are iTunes or Spotify. Mike Troxell owns Modern Financial Planning. All opinions expressed by Mike or guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Modern Financial Planning. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions.